The Water Values Podcast, Session 38. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey. Thanks for joining me. I hope everyone emerged from this polar vortex early winter storm well. Um, I don't know, or I guess I should say late fall storm. Um, I don't know how cold it got for you all, but it felt like mid-January here in Denver. Enough about the weather, and let's get on to today's show. Ken Kirk, the executive director of the National Association of Clean Water Agencies, joins us. Ken walks us through the history of NACWA, including the story behind how his organization came to be called the National Association of Clean Water Agencies. By the way, good call, Ken, on the name change, but you'll need to listen on to understand why it was a good call. Uh, He also discusses a number of issues that cities across the country deal with in trying to clean up our water, and Ken relates a lot of history to explain how we got where we are, and he provides us with, a, I think, a very interesting look at the future of clean water. So enjoy. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Now, my background is real easy. I'm a lawyer like many other lawyers in Washington, D.C., and uh, one of my first jobs was working for the Environmental Protection Agency uh, in the Office of Legislation right after the passage of the Clean Water Act. Uh, I worked directly for the administrator and had a responsibility to uh, deal with the issues that came out of the early implementation of the act. Uh, and while I was there, I met a group of folks who were forming a new organization called the Association of Metropolitan Sewerage Agencies. And I really liked their uh, style, and I really liked their passion. And I decided at that point that these are the guys who were going to make a difference in terms of cleaning up America's waters. Uh, And I decided that at some point, if the opportunity came up, I would like to work with them. And, And that's what happened back in 1978. And I've been uh, with them ever since, uh, since 1989, as their executive director. Okay. And what's organization now is called the National Association of Clean Water Agencies. Uh, it took a long time to change the name. Uh, the guys who formed the organization back in 1970 were very proud individuals, and they were proud of what they did. And the first time I suggested that they should change their name uh, to reflect more what the outcome of what they did was and rather than what they did was, they simply said no. Uh, Ten years later, I went back to them and said, look, I think you need to reconsider this decision that uh, you made a couple of years ago. And they said, okay, but we like the name. We'll just, we'll just, we like the name AMSA. And in very small letters underneath, we'll say what it is. Uh, And about five years after that, I went back again and said, look, it's time to change the name. The uh, the board had changed. The younger folks were uh, in in charge. uh, And they saw the real value in changing the name, and we did. And that's how we became the National Association of Clean Water Agencies. 
Yeah, we are a trade association uh, representing the interests of wastewater utilities around the country. We have approximately 300 utility members representing 80% of the steward population in the country. Uh, we also have a contingent of consulting engineers as subscribing members and also a bunch of law firms who are members because as time has gone on, we've gotten more and more involved on legal issues on behalf of our members. But primarily, we're a lobbying organization, spend a lot of time working uh, with Congress and the Environmental Protection Agency on Clean Water Act issues. Sure. Actually, I've been there since 1978. Uh, I've been the executive director since 1989. Uh, and as you know, uh, we like to think that things change a great deal over time. Uh, but in reality, they don't change that much. Uh, I tell my members and many other people that the three basic issues that we have to deal with uh, at any given time is what do you have to do, how much time do you have to do it, and who's going to pay for it. And if you look back to uh, the early days of the Clean Water Act, when it was passed in 1972, uh, over a presidential veto, I might add, uh, with rivers burning on fire throughout the country, and, and basically the rivers being declared by Lyndon Johnson national disgrace, uh, the, the law was extremely tough. The regulatory requirements were really, really uh, uh, hard. Uh, and meant to achieve an objective. And the time that folks were given to come in in compliance with the law was also really tough. A few years. 1985 was supposed to be zero discharge. Uh, the only difference was where the money came. They provided $18 billion in initial funding for a grants program that provided a great deal of help uh, for communities all around the country. That was why our organization was formed. Our members wanted to make sure that they got the money uh, and it didn't go to someone else. Uh, okay, so flash forward to uh, where we are today. You still have the same issues. Uh, what are the requirements? How long do you have to come into compliance with them? And who's going to pay for it? Well, today the regulatory requirements are just as tough as they were back then. The law has not been reauthorized in 25 years or, or, or about that. Uh, the time constraints are still the same. Uh, the law requires five-year permits uh, for uh, municipal discharges and industry discharges, so that hasn't changed. Uh, and the only difference is now there is no money. The federal government is broke. There is no grants program, and everyone's trying to scurry around, trying to figure out where the funds are going to come from in order to allow communities to make additional progress you know, going forward. And it's, uh, it, and, and it's really tough. Uh, that's why we have a funding gap. We have a funding gap of anywhere from $250 billion to a trillion dollars, depending on who you want to talk to, who you want to listen to. And that's not covering climate-related issues or resilience-related issues. It's just the difference between what communities spend now and what they need to spend to uh, maintain their infrastructure and meet all the requirements. They don't have enough money to do both, and that's why we've ended up with a gap.
the size that that it is. Well, early on, it was uh, basically construction requirements, secondary treatment, tertiary treatment. Uh, then we moved into when you, when, when you implement the treatment process, you end up with biosolids or sludge. Uh, so we had those issues. Then the agency moved into toxics and cleaning up the toxics and forcing, not forcing, encouraging folks around the country to develop pretreatment programs to ensure that what was coming into their systems was compatible with their systems. And then we moved into wet weather requirements, combined sewer overflows, sanitary sewer overflows, and stormwater. Uh, the big issue that uh, we're still grappling with today is nutrients. Uh, and even though most people would agree that most of the uh, problem uh, associated with nutrients is coming off the farms, uh, we're an easy target. Municipal, um, municipal utilities are an easy target. Put in a permit, make them go to zero discharge on nutrients, and you solve the problem. The only problem is you don't solve the problem because even if they all went to zero, we'd still have a nutrient problem and we'd still have problems in our lakes and streams around the country. Absolutely, and we have uh, we've done a lot of work with the uh, agricultural industry over the years, um, and continuing to this day. In fact, uh, about a month ago or so, we signed a memorandum of understanding with the National Milk Producers Federation, because they're interested in having their members build digesters. Our members are interested in getting a credit for the removal of nutrients. So it's a win-win you know, situation. Uh, we were also very successful in getting language put into the recent Farm Bill that acknowledges uh, the fact that uh, water and wastewater utilities are now eligible to uh, participate in partnership programs funded by, by the Department of Agriculture. Uh, and I've got to tell you, this has been a big deal uh, because ever since that you know, law was changed and, and, and uh, we've gotten calls from the ag community all over the country uh, asking us to participate with them one way or another uh, to collaborate on solving this problem. I think that they understand uh, that it's in their best interest and the country's best interest to work with us to solve the problem as opposed to just sitting on the sidelines. Well, several years ago, uh, we initiated a program called Money Matters to bring attention to the fact that all the money that was being invested in local infrastructure was local money. Uh, the only problem was, you know, EPA uh, and the law did not acknowledge uh, the fact that, you know, maybe decisions uh, uh, relating to water quality and implementation of programs would be better left to, to local governments. So it was basically a call for 
sanity uh, and flexibility, if you will, uh, at the federal level. And, uh, and, that, and, that, and that had a, uh, a major, uh, 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 provided major assistance at you know, EPA you know, in terms of moving forward because it wasn't too long after that. <clears throat> and we had the mayors involved in this as well and the counties and the cities. It wasn't too long after that that, that EPA announced that they were going to provide a uh, integrated planning and permitting framework, <clears throat> which recognized for the first time that maybe uh, 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 utilities at the local level should be given the opportunity to look at all the requirements that they have in front of them uh, over very stringent deadlines and put them in some type of priority order <clears throat> so that they're spending uh, the dollars that are going to have the biggest bang for the buck first. Uh, adaptive management, if you will. Uh, and EPA is pursuing this. We helped them uh, by sponsoring workshops throughout the country to bring our members in with EPA and the states to talk about how to do this. And they've been very, very successful. <clears throat> It really depends on the community. Um, and while this program has been around now for maybe two years or maybe even longer, two and a half years, three years at max, um, we have not seen any concrete examples of uh, communities uh, coming forward and going through this process. There are two or three that we're aware of out there uh, where uh, uh, communities are, you know, assessing their situation and putting together applications. <clears throat> Some of them are big, Baltimore, Maryland, for example. <clears throat> Some of them are small, Lima, Ohio. Uh, Medium-sized city, Spokane, Washington, is doing a lot of work in this area <clears throat> and estimates that they could save millions of dollars, you know, by doing it their preferred way as opposed to uh, the way that they were required to do it before. Um, so we don't have a lot of concrete uh, examples to, to point to uh, yet, but, uh, but they are coming and we're working real hard to encourage as many folks as we possibly can to, uh, you know, to adopt this new strategy. Uh, I don't know what the status of it right now, but we are working to get a couple of million dollars in the budget process on the Hill uh, to support communities who want to engage in integrated planning and permitting e efforts. Uh, and EPA amazingly came up with about $350,000 uh, to provide communities with the same uh, benefit. A lot of our members uh, have consent decrees, and these content, consent decrees uh, uh, go for 20 years or 25 years. EPA is extending them uh, as time goes on, and, and that's the other side of integrated planning and permitting. <clears throat> if you already have a consent decree, what they're doing is basically allowing communities to open up those consent decrees and modify them in a way uh, that uh, uh, applies some of the principles of integrated planning and permitting 
as opposed to just simply going ahead every year you have to do this and the next year you do that. Uh, so so that's, that's, I mean, that's the other part of it. Sure. Basically, uh, uh, consent decree is a is a is a, a legal document uh, that requires uh, a community uh, to come into compliance. Uh, in this case, say with the Clean Water Act, uh, over a period of years, uh, and typically requires that community to spend a certain amount of money <clears throat> over the over the over that period of years. Very detailed. Most of them relate to combined sewer overflows. Some of them relate to sanitary sewer overflows, uh, but uh, there are you know, numerous examples uh, of consent decrees around the country, and typically we're talking about a lot of money. We're not talking about a million here and a million there. Uh, we're talking about $3 billion in Cleveland. We're talking about $4 billion in Indianapolis. We're talking about $4 billion in St. Louis, another $4 billion in Atlanta, uh, 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 requiring very, very specific funding levels each year of the consent decree until compliance is achieved. Um, this is the way the agency operated and the Justice Department operated for many years. Some would say that that was a good thing to do. Some of our members would probably say that was the only way that we can get rate increases. Uh, but uh, the downside is, is that requiring communities to, to do things that may not be necessary or in the best interest of the environment. Uh, and that's why they're, I think EPA is willing to work with communities to open those up and provide more flexibility. I think they have been. Obviously, uh, you know, Chicago, the, the TARP program in Chicago has been a, a stellar example of that, um, and Milwaukee and, and, and other communities as well. Um, uh, but now people are starting to think twice about whether uh, a, an iron and steel and concrete solution is the best solution. You know, we're hearing a lot more about green infrastructure. The uh, city of Philadelphia, for example, has a CSO problem. They do not have a consent decree. They have administrative order. Um, and in, you know, the agency was convinced by Philadelphia that in their case, it would be uh, the best way forward. And they're basically, they have a mayor who has said that he wants Philadelphia to be the greenest city in the country. And they estimate that they're going to be able to save two or three billion dollars uh, by avoiding to, to, to build an underground tunnel and by using green infrastructure techniques, planting trees and working with other city uh, uh, departments in terms of schools and uh, the roads, et cetera, 
uh, to turn the city into a beautiful mecca for, for their citizens. Uh, in a lot of places, this makes a lot more sense. Uh, it's not necessarily the uh, solution in every case, but there needs to be, and what we're understanding is that there needs to be a balance between <clears throat> gray infrastructure and green infrastructure. Uh, and green infrastructure needs a chance. Uh, and it takes a little longer, requires more uh, design element, design, re re requires more people involved in the process. Uh, and it's, it's starting to happen all over the country. And this is one of the reasons why EPA is willing to open these consent decrees up to provide communities an opportunity to do more on the green infrastructure side. Well, the Utility of Future you know, program uh, you know, represents utilities that understand that um, uh, the old ways of doing things are not going to work anymore. So it recognizes that they have to be stellar enterprises. They have to uh, manage their utilities like an enterprise you know, program in the private sector. Uh, they have to figure out how to save money in doing that. They also have to figure out ways to enhance revenue, uh, resource recovery. We have communities that are uh, retrieving nutrients. Uh, the Ostara process turns you know, sludge into pellets and you know, crystallized pellets that they can use, uh, which is really not no longer a sludge or a biosolids anymore. It's a separate product. <clears throat> Electricity generation is huge. Uh, and uh, I think the goal of most of the communities who are part of this process is to become self-sufficient in terms of energy. All that saves money. A big part of the operating budget of a utility is electricity. Um, green infrastructure. I mean, working with the community to provide <coughs> uh, solutions that benefit uh, ratepayers and citizens of the community more broadly is very, very important. So they're focusing on that. Uh, and I think also part of it is, uh, you know, working with the private sector uh, because uh, they can't do it on their own. They're going to need some help in terms of, uh, uh, you know, working these other types of uh, projects into fruition, whether it's resource recovery or electricity generation uh, or digesters and taking food waste from around the city. So it's, it's, it's a very exciting time, you know, for communities, but uh, what it does is underscore, you know, the, the fact that there is this huge gap uh, in terms of uh, investment, uh, and it's a way that uh, they're demonstrating uh, to, to the public, as public servants, that they're serious about, you know, conserving uh, energy, conserving resources, doing whatever they can do that benefits the community to a much greater extent. Kind of interesting. We went to, uh, I guess, an American finance summit 
uh, last year in, at Dulles Airport. You may have been there. And I had a couple of our members on the program, and, and their reaction was somewhat interesting because what they noticed, and I guess what everyone noticed, was that all the representatives from the public agencies were in one room talking about their issues, and all the private financing guys were in another room talking about their issues, and they weren't talking to each other. And the private guys wanted to do more work for the public sector, and the public sector really didn't know what they were talking about, so they weren't even talking the same language. So we all got together, and we said, well, look, let's just have a dialogue. Let's just bring some of our members together and some of the private guys together and put them in a room and start breaking down the barriers between the two. Let's start understanding what their language is. And we did. And we had a day-long session in New York in June. And it was, uh, uh, it was very well attended. It was uh, very successful. And I think it started to break the ice in terms of our members understanding more where the private sector was coming and the private sector under, understanding more what the constraints and issues that we were dealing with. We're planning to continue that. Um, I, don't, I personally don't think that the huge concessions that we've heard about in the past uh, are necessarily going to be uh, uh, the way forward. Uh, but in terms of utility of the future type projects, smaller scale involving energy, generation or resource recovery, whatever it may be, uh, I think that's, you know, that's, that's where it's going to be. And green infrastructure. And I just, could I just finish one more thing? Because one thing we didn't touch about was, you know, where are we going from here? And the reality is, we've talked about a lot of things, uh, but when you start adding climate change and resiliency into the picture, we're talking about issues and problems that are going to take at least a couple of generations to resolve. It's not going to be done through the Clean Water Act. It's not going to be done through five-year permits or 15-year permits or 20-year consent decrees. It's going to have to be acknowledged that we have a lot of work to do. The paradigm has changed. The Clean Water Act is not going to be there to solve our problems in the 21st century. We need to figure out a way forward that recognizes that we're going to need a ton of money, and I don't care where it comes from, public sector, private sector. We're going to need a lot more time to get the job done, and we're going to need much more flexibility in terms of doing it right. Sure. I'm, I'm Ken Kirk, Executive Director of the National Association of Clean Water Agencies. We're based in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's uh, www.nakwa.org, I guess, is our, you know, uh, our website. Uh, we provide a lot of information uh, to, to folks through that site, and, and anybody can also give me a call, 202 833 4653. Be glad to talk to you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ken Kirk of NACWA. Just a terrific guy and so very, very knowledgeable. Uh, well, here are my takeaways. First, uh, the circumstances that gave rise to the Clean Water Act, which ultimately birthed Ken's organization, 
I think, provide a valuable perspective on government programs and legislation. Ken mentioned that the Clean Water Act was originally vetoed before that veto was overridden, and it was tough legislation to comply with initially, but the results, that long-term perspective, uh, have proved worthwhile. And so our waters have become cleaner and we live healthier lives as a result. You know, I'm not taking a position on proposed legislation or rulemakings or anything like that, but it's interesting history to note that transformative change like that brought about by the Clean Water Act or even the civil rights legislation from the 1960s, that legislation was initially controversial and perhaps unpopular in certain corners. But looking back, does anybody really doubt that it was the right decision to enact that? Um, I just wonder how legislation and rulemakings of today will be viewed through the prism of history. I could probably talk for a long time about uh, this issue, so I'll spare you and move on. Uh, but that's my that's my first takeaway is is really the ability to look at legislative programs and and you know agency programs you know from a long term perspective, not just what the impact is immediately, but look at that long term perspective. Um, so that's that's the initial takeaway is is you know choosing the right focus uh, with which to examine. Uh, a certain, you know, certain uh, piece of legislation or uh, a certain rule. Another takeaway is Ken's recognition of the limitations of the Clean Water Act. You know, his closing remarks, I think, captured a very important point. As we move forward in the future to address an ever-changing slate of, of issues, the typical permits that are issued under the Clean Water Act simply won't be enough. In order to maintain our systems that keep our water clean we need to invest money and a lot of it. We need creative thinkers to help us spend that money effectively. And we need bold leaders who are champions for clean water and who aren't afraid to tackle the tough issues. Well, there were lots more takeaways from Ken's talk. He, he relayed a lot of great information like the collaboration that's going on between NACWA and, for example, the National Milk Producers Federation, uh, as well as several of the other programs that Ken mentioned. But I'll leave you with the two takeaways I've already addressed as those are really at least in my opinion, the, the two big overarching thoughts um, that really transcend uh, the issues we, we talked about in this podcast. Well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 38. Leave a comment on the show notes or email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You, you can also tweet at me at DTM1993 and you can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. And don't forget to rate and please review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast directories like TuneIn. And please don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me.
Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.